following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. You know, it's really fun. I was trying to remember, I've been coming to this conference for years, and I'm not exactly sure how many years, but uh, IBCD was the first uh, training center um, that I got to learn how to be a biblical counselor or how to do biblical counseling. And, you know, it was just really neat because I was sort of reminiscing um, that pastor that got up today, and he was talking about how the guy that's the, the church planter in the, at down in Oceanside. When I was going through the program, I, I'm from Burbank, so I'm about two hours away. And I used to drive down here on Monday nights and do counseling observations, too, because back in those days, if you were going to get ACBC certified, you, have to watch, you had to watch counseling live. And that was the only training center that I could actually come and watch. And it was really fun because back in those days, I got to observe Jim Neuheiser, of course. George Scipioni was the main teacher during the training that time. And Elise and Phil Fitzpatrick were counselors there. And so I got to learn from all these people. And it was just marvelous um, just to kind of think back on what an impact IBCD had um, just in their training. So if you're in the midst of thinking about getting training from them, they're just... They're just amazing, and um, I'm just very thankful for that. Um, it inspired me to kind of go on further. I ended up going to the master's college after, and I got my master's in biblical counseling because I was just really excited about it. And that just kind of um, turned manifested into working at the master's college. <laughs> so um, I, I work there. I've been there about seven years, and I teach a couple of classes for them, uh, for the women, and I manage their office and keep all those professors in line. So, <laughs> but no, it's really fun. But really, my most important job and what I love the most is I've I've been a wife to my husband Sean. We're going to hit 30 years, and so that's really exciting. And uh, we have raised four children. Um, one is our last one. Our fourth child is uh, a senior in high school. So we're soon, we'll soon be empty nesters uh, somewhat, although Hannah's going to go to the master's college and I'll still be checking up on her. But anyway, so it's just fun. It's just fun to be in this ministry. Um, so I guess I've been involved with biblical counseling maybe about 15 years or so. And for me, it's just a one-another ministry. I love it. I love coming alongside women, and I love opening the scriptures. I love the Word of God. I, I, just, I just love being used that way. And it's just a blessing. And so I, I think a lot of you are nodding your head, so I'm sure you feel the same way. So it's just neat that you're here so that we can kind of just talk about counseling. And, you know, I'm going to be talking about equipping women to root out bitterness um, it's, it's a good one to talk about. I'm, I'm actually going through a bit of a trial in my life, so the Lord was keeping my heart in check. I always, I always think, gosh, Lord, this has a great sense of humor. Whenever I have to write these talks, suddenly I'm in the midst of it, you know? Um, and so I think it's just awesome. It just means the Lord's in control. He loves us. He cares about every little detail. And so I consider it a privilege. Um, but what I'd like to do um, is I'd like to just start off by probably with a counseling case. I think that's helpful, makes it super practical. And I'm going to um, introduce you to a woman named Polly. I mean, it's not her real name, but we'll just call her Polly. Um, I have women here in this audience that are from my church, and so this isn't a woman from our church, just so you know. <laughs> I would never do that. I don't want you to try to guess. Who is she talking about? No. Um, anyway, Polly... <laughs> Polly was a Christian woman who came to me for counseling once upon a time, and she came because she needed help because she was just in a really tough uh, marriage. Um, she explained to me that her husband, who was an unbeliever, had become very self-destructive in his lifestyle. He was enslaved to alcohol. That was his, his biggest issue, and, and now... You know, after some time of this, it was beginning to impact his life in a major way. It was just, things were just unraveling for him, including at work, because that usually happens after a time. And so that, that was really the trial that she was facing. In biblical counseling, we call it the heat. If you're familiar with the Three Trees diagram, that was the trial that she was facing. And, um, and over time, what became really evident is that as I was meeting with her the first couple of times, it just became very evident to me that rather than looking to God and trying to learn how to respond in a way that glorified him, she was actually looking to me to try to help her to find a way out of the marriage. 
you know, did she have biblical grounds for divorce? That kind of thing. And so, you know, in the process of meeting together, you know, it was just like, wow, you know, this, this gal that's suffering, you know, she was suffering, no doubt. But she was really struggling with bitterness. And it's difficult when a person finds himself here because as, you know, a bitter person, if you've ever looked at Hebrews 12:15, what it points out to you is that it has the potential to cause so much trouble in a person's life and in the lives around them. And consequently, bitterness always has the potential to defile so many um, And so, I mean, I want you just to think for a minute, you know, just think of the marriages. Maybe you've been counselors of many women who've been in difficult marriages that end because of bitterness. Or how about churches that divide because of bitterness? It's huge, right? Um, Or how about friendships that end because of bitterness? And... I think it's just an important topic to dialogue. I think that this will be helpful for you in your counseling, but I think this will be helpful for you personally. It's helpful for me personally. I was like, Lord, thank you for letting me learn all of this. Um, but I, I do have a fourfold, fourfold goal that I think will be helpful because the first thing that I want to help you with today is I, I really just want to help you to understand bitterness better by, by looking at some definitions. I think definitions are helpful. Um, there's a lot of great biblical counselors out there that have written a lot of wonderful resources. I mean, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Um, we'll take a look at scripture, of course. Um, that will give us a biblical definition. We're going to examine um, some evidences of bitterness. It's really important um, when you're when you're meeting with somebody and you're doing data gathering, as they say, that you look for these outer man behaviors and you start listing out some things. That is what helps you to kind of try to understand what, what the heart is behind those things. Um, and then we'll look at the ruling desires or the motives behind, you know, what's the heart behind those things, I think that's really super important to kind of discover. And then we'll just look at some practical steps. How do we root it? What would be a way to come alongside someone and begin to help them with the repentance process, basically? Um, so here, let's start with our definitions. I think I did fill in the blank because I figured you're probably falling asleep by now. So <laughs> fill in the blanks and keep you awake, you know. <laughs> okay, so here's, here's a helpful definition. Um, this comes from the Dictionary of Bible Things, and they define bitterness as a feeling of anger and resentment caused particularly by perceived unfairness, okay? Uh, By perceived unfairness and suffering or by some adverse um, circumstance. That's That's a good definition. Here's a second one. Um, if you ever go on to the Biblical Counseling Coalition uh, site, there's just a great place to find resources. And Julie Ganshaw is a, a gal that um, writes quite a bit. She's uh, got a counseling center. But she, this is the definition she came up with uh, through an article that I read. She said that bitterness is unresolved, unforgiven anger, and resentment. It is the result of anger changing from an experience to a belief. Bitterness is seething, and it's constant. Bitter people carry the same burdens as angry people, but to a much greater extent. It's a good definition. Appreciate that one. Lou Priolo. I love Lou Priolo. I hope you get to read some of his material. He's just wonderful. But he wrote this little booklet. And I think it's an excerpt out of a bigger book, but it's called Bitterness, the Root that Pollutes. So this is where this comes from. The Bible says that bitterness is a resentful, unforgiving attitude which cuts and pricks others as well. To put it another way, bitterness is the result of responding improperly or unbiblically to an offense. Okay? Bitterness is the result of dwelling too long on a hurt. That's very helpful. Um, so based on these definitions, and as you've probably discerned, as you've you know, been filling in the blank there, the potential for bitterness to take root in the heart seems to begin when we've been hurt and we choose to dwell on it. You know? um, or we've been offended by somebody and by someone and we haven't dealt with it biblically or we have this belief that something has happened to us that we think is just unfair or maybe it's unjust. 
And we find ourselves in some, or, you know, another thing that could happen to is you find yourself in some adverse circumstance, um, and you just don't think through it biblically. You know, it's, it's, there is no temptation common to man. We've all been there, you know? I mean, it's so true. And so it's just kind of interesting to kind of see it through different ways. And as Christians, I think we all know intellectually and biblically that when we're offended or sinned against, we know that we're called by Christ to handle it biblically, right? We know that. And when we say, what does it mean to handle it biblically? What we're saying is that ultimately we're choosing to refuse to retaliate and instead, for love's sake, release the offender from obligation to suffer some kind of penalty, right? Um, But although we know that intellectually, and although we know that biblically, and although we know that we have the capacity to forgive or trust in him, too often Christians just don't choose God's way. You know, we're sinners, and that happens, and people come and uh, get counsel about those things, because often what we do is we choose to keep a record of wrong, right? We choose to retaliate in some way. We choose to react in a worrisome or anxious way. Um, And it's just really that kind of unbiblical thinking and choices that are the seeds that begin to root in the heart, in the soil of our hearts, and then it just, you know, it just starts sprouting all kinds of fruit, just like the bitterness, you know, that's all the bad fruit. Um, And ultimately, as I said, is it, it just really begins to have the potential to destroy marriages, to destroy churches, and to destroy friendships, you know, uh, business relationships. And in Polly's case, uh, the counselee, you know, as I was beginning to gather data with her, what I noticed is that she, she had just certain desires of her husband when they got married. And what had happened over time is that her desires became expectations that were unmet. And she just learned how to retaliate in particular ways towards him because she felt justified in doing that. Um, And because of all the stuff that was going on, she really believed in her mind that what she was experiencing was very unjust and very unfair um, because what she was camping on is that he had, you know, pretended um, that he was a believer. He was just, you know, a religious faker or whatever when they got married. And so that, that actually was, she was like, well, you know, I'm justified in my anger. Um, so she uh, came to see me. And you know what? I, I let her tell me her story, of course. You know, I want to hear what you're going through. I, I want to understand all the dynamics. And it just gave me this wonderful opportunity just to open up the riches of Scripture and just walk her through. I decided to walk her through Ephesians. And so that's basically what the talk is going to be revolving around. Um, I wanted to take her to the riches of Scripture, and I wanted to dialogue with her in love about her responses, because she was a professing believer, but her responses were not lining up with the way she learned about Christ, right? And so we just kind of, we did that. And so turn to Ephesians 4. Let's look at 31 to 32, and let's all of us be reminded of some important truths here. You'll be familiar with this. Paul says in... uh, Verse 31, to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you, along with all malice. So you're familiar. You know, she, the first thing that Polly needed to be reminded of when I was uh, taking her through this is she needed to be reminded that this is, uh, this is an exhortation to believers. Okay, so let's, let's make sure, you know, this is to believers. This is for you. This is for me. And it's, an, it's part of, um, it's, it's in Ephesians 4, so it's part of a very practical section of Ephesians. And so Paul is just simply exhorting the believer to put away once and for all bitterness among the other sins that he mentions there. But not only that, if you go back to Ephesians 4.1, take a look at that for a minute. Um... Notice that Ephesians 4.1 begins with an I therefore. And this is important to note because Paul is basing his exhortation in Ephesians 4.31 on the doctrines that he has just talked about in Ephesians 1 through 3. Okay? It's like he's saying this. If you're familiar with Ephesians, you know you've got 1 through 3. It's as if he's saying, in, um, Beloved, here is what your Savior's done for you. Ephesians 1 through 3. 
So therefore, in light of this great salvation that he's bestowed upon you, because of God's great mercy and great love, you ought to live like the new creature that you are. And that's what Ephesians 4 to 6 really is. The reflection or the obligation of who we are in Christ. I mean, after all, Ephesians reminds us, we're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. Um, We're alive in Christ. And so therefore, Paul says, um, you know, I urge you or I beseech you. Some of your translations say beseech to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, which which should reflect attitudes like humility and gentleness and patience and love and unity and holiness and purity and forgiveness. Bitterness, however, that's something that you need to lay aside once and for all. Because you know why? It's connected to your old man. It's your old life. And believers um, are to be new creations. They are new creations and their life's to be set apart. We're to be different. We're not to walk like the Gentiles any longer or an unbeliever any longer. That's just a, when he says Gentiles, it's just a, it's just a reference to unbeliever. Now, in the original language, because I like to talk about, you know, when I give biblical definitions, I actually like to look at the words and see what they mean. So I think this will be interesting. But the Greek word for bitterness in this context is prokrya. Okay? And what Paul is talking about is he's talking about somebody that has a very resentful frame of mind. They're very harsh, and they have a settled hostility. And ultimately, of course, you know, that's going to poison the inner man, right? Um, the literal translation is what Paul is saying, if you were to literally translate it, is he's saying all manner of bitterness and violent outbreaks of wrath and anger and brawling and slanderous speech. Let that be put away from you together with all manner of malice. And so the idea is for the believer to completely abandon this mental condition because, as I said before, it's connected with the old man. And instead, instead we are to be becoming kind to one another. Okay, that's the literal translation. Or to be becoming tender-hearted, or to be becoming forgiving each other, even as uh, God in Christ has forgiven us. Of course, that's you know the characteristic of a Christian. These, you know, and I'm just I'm just sharing with you what I dialogued with her about. I mean, this is the conversation we're having. It's just very natural. We're just going through the scriptures. We're just having this conversation. I'm teaching her. I'm teaching her what the scriptures say. Trying to help her to understand what's going on and I said you know the point is that the new man or I should say the new woman right um, are to live new lives that's the point in Christ we are to live new lives and so by God's grace we must root out all bitterness once and for all Um, and so in order to do that I also told her that we need to take some time to look at some evidences of bitterness because I think that's important I think it's important for counselors too because a lot of times you're data gathering you're asking a lot of questions when you first meet with people and you're just trying to get information trying to figure out what's going on here and really by meeting with her and dialoguing with her a lot of these evidences I'm going to share with you are, are evident in her life but keep in mind that we could never say as counselors that we completely know the heart. Only God completely knows the heart, right? Um, when, when we observe outer band behaviors, if you will, all that does for a counselor um, is just evidence a much deeper fire going on within their heart. Okay, these are, it illustrates for us. And we get that biblically because what does Jesus say? He says it's out of the heart, right? that the mouth speaks or out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony. And so with that in mind, let's just kind of look at the first evidence. I think this is interesting because I think probably all of us have struggled with this to one degree or another. But the first evidence is just withdrawing, okay? Um, When we are hurt or we're offended by another person, and we choose not to deal with that situation biblically, what we often do is we succumb to some kind of retaliation in some form. And this is a form of retaliation, to withdraw. Um, and this is, this is a passive form of retaliation, because think about it. In a sense, 
you're depriving another person of, you know, who's offended you of your presence because you're not moving towards them to work out the conflict. You're withdrawing. So you're, you're choosing to, you know, keep, uh, just withhold your presence. And, you know, you can even go so far as to plan people that are in that withdrawal mode. They even go so far as to plan to make sure that they, you know, plan all their activities so they don't run into that person. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> because why? Because they want you to get the message. <laughs> You're not happy, <laughs> so I'm going to withdraw from you. And it's really probably the most common evidence of bitterness that I probably have observed and I'm sure I've struggled with or just seen in the body of Christ because when we, you know, we can hurt the other person without really doing anything. You're just withdrawing. Um, and this bad fruit just shows up in marriages, like I said, in workplaces and in churches. And I saw, I saw this evidence in Polly and how it manifested itself was whenever her husband did something she didn't like or said something that, she, that hurt her feelings or something, she just defaulted to the silent treatment. You know what the silent treatment is? <laughs> that's a form of withdrawing. And that's one way she retaliated against her husband. And, of course, it caused so much trouble, you know, right? Because she's not moving towards him. She's moving away. Okay, so here's another one. Complaining, gossiping, or slandering, it's, it's an, the evidence is really just a, a manifestation of speech. You have to pay attention to what you're hearing them say. So um, if you hear them openly complaining or criticizing or maybe slandering their offender, um, you know, it's, it's possible that they're struggling with bitterness in some way. And it, it shows up in all kinds of ways. Um, for example, if a person's embittered towards their spouse, their attitude towards them may just be very critical. So they're just very harsh in their tone. Um, they just don't see the person in the best possible light. And if you really listen to the criticism carefully, you can tell it's just usually not helpful criticism. <laughs> it's just actually kind of meant to be... Uh, Tearing the person down, that's the goal. Um, or if a person's embittered, um, they may be caught up in some kind of complaining where they're just venting their bad feelings or their ill will towards a person, right? And that's hurt them in some way and, you know, that doesn't solve anything. And then unfortunately, slander would be another bad fruit. Um, and you see that, I, you know, you just see that in the body of Christ and, and other places when people just talk behind each other's back. And what is slander? What's the goal of slander? It's, it's to, yeah, make someone look bad so that you give someone the impression a person's just horrible. And, and you want to convince them of that report because you want to be looked at in the best possible light. And it's dangerous. Man, this is divisive. Um, Proverbs 16.28 reminds us that a perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip separates friends. So again, you know, the trouble with bitterness is it divides people. It divides people in the body of Christ, and it breeds disunity so bad. It's just amazing. And guess who's happy about that? He loves it. It breeds disunity. That's how he, you know, roams around like that lion. So, Polly, again, you know, I guess the manifestation that um, I noticed is when she, that she was just very caustic in her speech when she would describe to me situations. She was just very condescending. She treated her husband like a child, you know, that kind of thing. So to talk to her about that. Um, and she just said things that weren't very kind. Because, you know, she's just, that's just where she was at. That's the state she was in. So the next thing that, that uh, was something that I had thought through is that oftentimes when a person's struggling with, with bitterness, it shows up in their life because they have difficulty resolving conflict. That, that seems to be an evidence. Um, again, Lou Priolo, he says that resolving conflicts with a person that you're unwilling to forgive is like trying to build a skyscraper without first laying down a solid foundation. <laughs> and the reason why, he says the bitterness will doom the project before it even gets off the ground. And the reason why is because when a person keeps a list of wrongs and they bear a grudge against somebody, um, you know, when it comes time to work out a conflict, it just goes unresolved. And actually what happens is it just becomes another occasion for them to add to the list <laughs> of all the wrongs that they've been keeping a list of. 
And that person will take that list and they'll rehearse it over and over and over again in their mind, right? And when they do this, um, when, we, when we do this, when we get caught up in this kind of activity, what happens is that we're effectively rejecting any opportunity to see if we had something to contribute to this issue. Um, and, you know, maybe the original conflict isn't all one-sided. Maybe perhaps we had some part in that. And so that's something to talk to them about. And when you do that, guess, guess who you're making the judge? Yourself, right? You become the judge um, in those kinds of situations, and you begin to shift the responsibility of solving the conflict on the other person, you know. And again, you know, poor Polly, she struggled in this area as well. Um, it, it just kind of got to the point. By the time, you know, unfortunately, by the time she came to see me, it was already just falling apart. But um, they were at a point where they just weren't communicating at all. There was just like roommates in a house. And every time they tried to sit down and resolve conflicts, um, they would just end up fighting. And someone would leave in a huff. And the, the list would just continue to build, really. But another evidence that you'll come across with someone that's struggling in this area is distrust. Um, typically, this temptation plays out when bitterness is the result of dwelling too long on a hurt. You know, you're meeting with a woman maybe that's come out of a situation where her husband's committed adultery, and she's just so hurt. And maybe the offender, the husband, the spouse, whatever, has repented. They've asked for forgiveness, and the offended has granted forgiveness, but there's still this ongoing distrust, and there's still this suspicion that goes on. The offended sometimes creates scenarios in their head because they just, you know, can't believe that the spouse won't hurt them again in the same way. Um, you know, and they just worry and they fret, and they just have trouble believing the best. And that's just something you have to walk through with a person. You know, First Corinthians 13 is talking about how, to re- how do we re- rebuild trust with someone that's obviously repented and things like that. Um, with Polly, she had a distrustful disposition, but it was, it was just other things that she was just bothered by. You know, the fact that her husband had defrauded her because um, he said he was a believer when they got married. But when I asked her, did you get marriage counseling before you got married, what do you think she said? (laughs) I said, well, you know, sometimes there's consequences when we don't go to the right people before we decide to get married. But I wasn't trying to be cavalier, but it's just something to bring to their attention that, you know, there there is wisdom in meeting with people for premarital counseling for a lot of different reasons. But... She was just very hurt, and because she felt defrauded, she just had a difficult. She had difficulty with trusting. But basically, the the problem was is because she wasn't trying to win her husband without a word, so to speak. Uh, she was kind of blowing her testimony. So we had to talk about that. You know, your actions are blowing your testimony because your husband's not a believer, and you have this opportunity. This is your mission field. Things like that. Another evidence would be acts of vengeance or repaying evil for evil. Um, you know, when people are deeply hurt, sometimes you, you meet with people that have been physically or sexually abused, and those are just difficult, difficult situations. Or, or maybe there's a situation like one year my husband was fired after 20 years of working in a company, and it was just a really weird reason. But, um, you know, sometimes you, you have uh, thoughts of retaliating in those situations. Or, you know, again, maybe a spouse has been involved in adultery, and so... Sometimes people get into a situation where they're tempted to retaliate in some way. Um, and their goal is really just to get back or to get even because they feel hurt. And that's where they're coming from. And, and all I can say about Polly is the way she wanted to retaliate is she just wanted to get out of that marriage. She just wanted to abandon the guy. So that's kind of where she was coming from. She had difficulty bearing up under the trial because in her words she felt that the total weight on her shoulders was just too much and she just really didn't want to wait upon God to work through any kind of peacemaking attempts. That's kind of a quote. That's what she told me. So, you know, this is just, I wish I could say this, this is the gamut. This is everything. But guess what? There are so many other evidences. I didn't even, I'm probably just the tip of the iceberg. But, you know, you got to look out for things like um, intolerance, hypersensitivity, Impatience, contempt, irreverence, rebellion against authority, and, and even depression, which, which is interesting because I want you to think about something. When you bear a grudge, doesn't that take a lot of energy? 
Yeah, so think about when you've chosen to bear a grudge. It expends so much emotional energy when you become bitter in that way that it just depletes you, and it will spiral into depression. So when a person comes to see you and says, you know, my pres- her presentation problems, I'm depressed, that could be why. And so you just got to ask questions to see where is this stemming from. And, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't say that bitterness is an evidence that someone's just not saved. I mean, that could be a possibility. In fact, um, Hebrews 12.5 is actually referring to an unbeliever. I, didn't, I don't know if you've ever studied Hebrews, but the context of that is the bitter root in that context is a bitter person um, that associates themselves with believers. But he's not, he or she's not really a believer and that bitter person has the potential of being divisive in the body of Christ. So what the Hebrew writer is doing there is he's exhorting believers. He's saying, be warned and see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble which defiles so many. So a lot of people use that first set of context, but that's really referring to an unbeliever. All righty. So those are evidences. How about we get to the heart? Let's get to the heart. So turn to James 4. You know, we've, we've explored just a definition. And, you know, an hour is really not enough to cover everything, but I'm trying to cover as much as I can. But you've got some definitions. You've looked at a mandate to lay bitterness aside. We've looked at some evidences that might would probably help you to discover for persons struggling. And so it would be wonderful if we could just stop here and we could renounce the habit of being bitter and just be gracious to one another instead. <laughs> you know, just stop it. But it's not always that easy. Um, sometimes you have to dig a little deeper with people. You have to try to figure out how did they get here in the first place? What was the, the ruling desire? And I think James 4, 1 through 3 helps us to understand that a little better. Um, he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from your desires? that battle within you. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Um, When we're bitter... Like I said, it can be the cause of much conflict in our lives, but I really think it can be traced back to our desires, you know, what we desire. So let's talk a little bit about desires. Every person has desires. Are all desires bad things? Yeah. Desires can be good, um, can be good things. Sometimes, like for example, you, you know, you meet with these single gals. I want to be married. That's a good desire, don't you think? Yeah, they want to be married so bad, and so you're trying to encourage them, maybe even set them up you know, with somebody. Those are good desires. But what if our good desires go unmet? Then what? Do we continue to trust God with the situation, <laughs> or do we begin to respond with this profound disappointment? You know, our desires are going unmet. Um, those can begin to rule the day. Um, And that's really kind of where the downward spiral begins because as you dwell on your disappointments, it has the potential to work deeper into the heart. And when this happens, you may spiral down or your counselee may spiral down because they begin to see their good desires as something they think they need, they think they must have, that they deserve. And if they don't get it, they're never going to be happy, they're never going to be satisfied, and they're never going to be fulfilled. And when that happens, those desires have become demands, okay? Sometimes you call them ruling desires, demands. Um, The dialogue kind of goes something like this, and I just picked a couple of scenarios. Um, So just think about this for a minute. I've worked so hard at my job, and I've done everything that my boss has asked me to do. I deserve that promotion, okay? Now, there's some validity to some of that, but what if... You don't get that promotion. Then what? Or how about this one? This one kind of came up. I thought it was kind of funny because I need a new car, so this will work. Um, I've worked very hard this year. I deserve to buy that new car. But what if your husband says you can't afford it and you got to wait? Then what? <laughs> you know? Um, and so the point is that, um, I guess I got a little ahead of myself there, but the point is that the more we think about something and the more we want it, Uh, And the more we succumb to thinking that if only I had blank, 
then I would be happy, satisfied, and fulfilled. And when it gets to this point, that good desire has grown so strong, it's now beginning to rule your thoughts and your actions. And in biblical counseling terminology, we would just say it's just beginning, it's becoming an idol. You know, it's progressing into an idol now. Um, and that's, that's kind of what you need to talk to your counselees about, what you've got to deal with. Um, I love this. I think I, did I put the Martin Luther quote on your outline so you wouldn't have to try to write it down? Okay, good. <laughs> he says that to whatever we look for, any good thing, and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by God. To have a God is nothing more than to trust and believe in him from the heart. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. Good quote. Yeah. So how can we discern uh, with our counselees, um, you know, if their desires turn into a demand and all of that? Um, you know, Ken Sandy, you're probably familiar with Peacemakers, right? Um, so he's got several books, and I got these questions I'm going to share with you out of Peacemaking for Families. It's very good. It's very good because a lot of these resources that were given, um, another one that could be just as helpful for you as you're trying to ask good questions of your counselees to try to figure out what these desires of the heart would be uh, seen with new eyes. David Powelson, he's got x-ray questions in chapter 7, I think, and then I think chapter 8 goes on to kind of help you discern those things a little bit better. But here's just some like five or six questions that you can begin to ask a person just to try to discover what's going on there. So the first one would be, what are you preoccupied with these days? Is this thing on your mind morning and night? <laughs> it's kind of convicting because I'm thinking, oh, yeah. Okay. And then how would you finish this sentence? If only I had blank, then I would be happy and fulfilled and secure. Or where do I put my trust? You can ask a person, where do you put your trust? Where do you put your trust? Or when a certain desire is not met, how do you respond? Are you responding with frustration, um, anger, bitterness, depression? Or are you trusting the Lord? You know. So these are just good questions. Um, and here's a good one. Is there something that you desire so much that you're willing to hurt others to get it? It's a biggie, you know. Um, so, you know, when good desires go unmet and we find that we are frustrated, we're angry, or your counsel is bitter... We, what happens is it's a spiraling effect. So you got desires, they become demands, and then suddenly it spirals into this thing called I judge. Um, and because you fall into the trap of judging others. Um, and the reason why is because the unmet desires are failing to satisfy you. And so you default to criticizing, to nagging, to uh, condemning those who are not living up to your expectations. These are some of the things I had to talk to Polly about. These are, these are unmet expectations that you're, you're struggling with, and you're, you're, become, you're putting yourself in the place of judge. And you're not the judge or the lawgiver. <laughs> so, you know, I had to take her to James about that one, too. But anyway, it's sinful because when you put yourself in the place of judge, it's speculating what another person's motive is, right? Um, and so we need to be careful because we are not to impose our unrealistic expectations on others. And then, unfortunately, when, the, when it's starting, the, you know, the downward spiral, I punish. You know, when others fail to live up to our expectations or give in to our desires, we just find ways to hurt them. And I just gave you all the evidences. You know, we hurt them by withdrawing. We hurt them by talking behind their back. You know, we hurt them by lashing out. We hurt them by some kind of retaliation. It can be subtle. It can be out there. But at the end of the day, it's just a very controlling and manipulative tactic because when you don't give me what I want, I'm going to punish you by imposing guilt or shame or mean words or withdrawing or something to get back at you just to send a message. I'm not happy. That's what it kind of comes down to. Okay? So now that we kind of very quickly, like fire hydrant, <laughs> went through uh, just a little bit more about how desires connect to bitterness, you know, as Christians, it's just really important that we, because this is biblical counseling, so we need to look to God and we need to ask him to help us how to abandon bitterness and ungodly desires because anything we look for apart from God is nothing but false worship. That's what's really going on here. 
Um, and so that's, that's important to um, talk to your counselees about that. And thankfully, there's hope. There's always hope for a center, right? And that's the good news. Um, we don't have to be stuck here. They don't have to choose Polly doesn't have to be bitter the rest of her life. Um, God has provided everything she needs for life and godliness. And, of course, the most important thing is that God provided a Savior who lived the perfect life that we should have lived and experienced the punishment, right, that we deserve because of, the, because of sin, such as bitterness. And so there's always forgiveness in Christ. When you, when you meet with counselees, you need to make sure you're generating some hope because they're coming to you. And they're very, you know, when she came in to see me, she's like this. Her countenance is like this. And so you need to inspire hope in people. Um, you need to explain these things to them, that there's always hope for a sinner. You don't have to stay stuck here. You have a Savior who loves you. There's always forgiveness in Christ. Um, and so here's some things that we went through um, as far as working out bitterness um, the first thing would just be to repent. You know, she's got to repent before God. You know, I'm defining terms for her. I'm taking her to Scripture. I'm helping her to understand what's going on. So now we need to, well, in biblical counseling, we call it inducement. Now we need to talk about repenting. Um, so what does it mean to repent? Repenting means to turn back or to return. Um, and we know, we all know that repentance is, requ- is a grace that's required for salvation. But did you know that obviously repentance is something uh, that is taught that's to be a continual act based on your awareness and conviction of sin daily, right? So this is something that you have to sometimes teach people. They don't understand that this is a continual thing. We repent all the time, daily, of sin. And I found something that was really kind of helpful. I love Puritans, but Thomas Watson has written lots of things, but he wrote a little book on the doctrine of repentance. I just wanted to give you just six things just to hang your hat on that you could fill in the blank there. He says, you know, the first thing that, um, I put doctrine of sin, but I think that's the wrong book. It's actually the doctrine of repentance. Um, The first ingredient of true repentance is the person has sight of sin, sight of sin. Um, In other words, um, you know, a person needs to see themselves as a sinner and nothing but a sinner. So let's just have a correct view of man there. And then secondly, there should be sorrow, genuine sorrow over that sin. It's not superficial, you know. Um, It's a holy, you know, that's why I love the Puritans. They call it holy agony. It's holy agony. It's referred to sometimes in the like in the book in Joel or in the Old Testament they call it a rendering of heart, but it's like a breaking of heart. It's like a ripping from the heart. Um, then there should be confession of sin. You have to talk to them about what confession is. I mean, confession should be voluntary. The heart should deeply resent the sin, and it should, there should be a sincere confession. I try to help people confess specifically. You know, like how we always say, you know, at the root of this is pride, you know. But I try to help people try to figure out what the manifestation is. So when they go to the Lord about this, they're very specific about the sin. I think that's important. Um, and it should, then there should include a resolution to never do it again. Um, the fourth one is there should be a shame for sin. Um, the Puritans call it a holy bashfulness. You know, you're just broken. You just realized, you know, at the end of the day, you've sinned against a holy God. And that's kind of what that's all about. <laughs> Five, there should be a hatred for sin. Um, a true penitent, you know, somebody who's truly repentant, I would is less like a sin loather, you know. Um, And there's just a dislike of sin, not only in judgment, but in the will of the affections. And so that's something to talk to them about. And then just, you know, then there should be a turning. There should be a turning from sin. Um, Dying to self is really the life of repentance. So Thomas Watson really kind of based this on a very, you know, famous psalm. What What do you think psalm he based this on? What'd you say? Oh, you get the prize. That's right. In the Bible, we have been given Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is awesome. It is the best example that we have. I mean, obviously, Scripture has other examples, but I think that is a wonderful example of what genuine, true repentance is. 
So if, you ha- if you're not familiar with Psalm 51, I would say please get familiar with it because you can walk a counselee through and just try to help them to see that biblically. Um, the backdrop of Psalm 51 is 2 Samuel 11. You know the story. Remember King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he you know, orchestrated some events so that her husband ended up being murdered and um, things like that. And then do you remember who confronted him? Yeah. And wasn't it, I mean, I would like to learn how to confront the way he confronts because he just told a story. And I was like, I would love to learn how to do that. That's kind of cool. Um, but so what I did on your outline, because I knew that it would, you know, just going through Psalm 51 would take forever, which someday we should just probably do it on Psalm 51. But I wanted to give you just sort of uh, quick notes on something you can look at later. They're important notes, and you can study them later. Um, but I want you to notice as you go through Psalm 51, and you could open up to that psalm if you want to, and I'll just take you through it kind of quickly. But, you know, David seriously considered his sin. He was seriously convicted, and he seriously considered that. And you see it in verse 3 there. Um, As you read 1 through 4, what you're going to find is that David had a genuine sorrow over his sin. Genuine. It's very genuine. And he confessed it to God voluntarily with great resolve, um, great sincerity, and just genuineness. Um, verse 4, what you're going to pick up on is that he's ashamed of his sin um, and that he has a hatred for sin and just this resilient longing to reconcile with God. And he has the proper attitude. Um, he just really exemplifies true repentance because he's, he's really modeling there for us uh, a true repentance from the inside out. And so when you go through Psalm 51, try to go through it just very systematically and very carefully and maybe journal through it in your own quiet time or something um, because it's, it's so helpful and you can help, you know, because, you know, a lot of people think they're repentant, but they don't necessarily have all of the aspects of it. And you can just, it's a good teaching moment. Um, so that's important to do that. And then the next thing, so we've got repentance before God and the next R, because you have to have alliteration, right, when we teach is we need to renew our minds. So you're helping the counseling learn about repentance, and now we need to talk about how, you know, what do we need to renew our mind with as you work out or root out bitterness. Um, one of the great graces that God gives us to identify sin, of course, is the Word of God. Who here knows Hebrews 4.12? The Word of God is what? That's right. And it penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. So, you know, you have to encourage your counselees. You need to be sure that they're, you know, primarily when you give them homework, it should be the Word of God. But make sure they're sitting under some good, solid preaching of the Word, that they're studying it and meditating on it. Because that's what God's going to use ultimately to help them to search out their sin. Um, And then Jesus, of course, reminds us that as Christians abide in his word, we will be fruitful. Um, So the first thing that I would do and what I did with her is I just encouraged her to consume her thoughts and her minds with the gospel first. I think she just needed to go back to square one. Let's just remind ourselves who we are in Christ. I want you just to think through the gospel truths. Um, This kept her from getting discouraged because she was just dealing with so much sin in her life. And it's important for all of us to take time out and just to remember that we've been forgiven through the death of Christ. And the gospel also keeps us humble because it forces us to remind ourselves that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And so what I did is I just had her read through Ephesians 1 through 2 so that she would be reminded of the spiritual blessings she has in Christ. That I just love the language in there. That's just been lavished upon her. Um, I had her work through Colossians. I wanted her to understand because a lot of times when people struggle, they have such a low view of God. And so Colossians is also a good place to, to go because Colossians 1 talks about the preeminence of Christ. You know, let's just remind us of who we're serving here. Um, and that, you know, we can, we've been, I love Colossians 3 because it talks about being set apart and chosen and beloved, you know, and it, it's, it's just all because of God's grace. Um, and we've been forgiven. Um, I had her do a really careful reading of Romans. 
1 through 11 initially because I wanted her to be reminded of the fact that as believers we're dead to sin but we're alive to Christ you know it's twofold we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore we're slaves to righteousness I mean just great truths to be reminded of we're heirs with Christ we have a future glory you know all those kinds of things important and then um, after we spent time there you know you camp there for a while Um, I had her take time just to check her heart. A lot of times people just, you know, they bask in the gospel truths, but they need to also take time to check their heart. And part of the goal, and I had her, you know, just study Matthew 7, 3 through 5, but part of the goal would be to read and think through carefully whether or not she had some responsibility in the situation with her own sin. Um, You know, that was important. Um, I think we should all do that. Like, even before... Even if you had to confront a person or whatever you're dealing with, you should always check the, the big old log in your own eye before you go check, you know, talk to the, the speck in the other person's eye. But, um, you know, so she needed to take some responsibility for some things, and she needed to confess some things and ask for forgiveness for some things. And so that was important. That was, you know, this is just something we they took her through. I think it was important for her just to cons- just to learn how to consider the members of her earthly body as dead. Um, that's part of renewing the mind. You just take them to key scriptures that talk about that. Romans 6 is wonderful because it reminds a believer that their old life has been crucified with Christ and they're no longer slaves to sin. Um, so, she could, so she can consider herself dead to sin like bitterness and alive to God in Christ. So she didn't have to let bitterness reign in her life. She was allowing bitterness to reign in her life, but she didn't have to allow it. She had the capacity to uh, be a slave of righteousness. Um, Colossians 3, 5 through 9 is just reiterating really a lot of what Ephesians talks about by putting to death what's earthly within her. Um, And Galatians 2.20, I love Galatians 2.20 because it reminds us that we've been crucified with Christ, that it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And so, you know, this this life of faith that we live is a life of faith, and and we can live that way because of Christ, because of the Son of God. Um, So... The thing is, is, as much as we need to renew our minds, um, there is a teaching out there that that's all there is. But in, in as much as there, we need to renew our minds by consuming our thoughts with the gospel and checking our heart and considering our, our earthly body is dead to sin and all of that, we also have to be sure we have a balance. So we need to make sure we're reaffirming righteousness. And it's just another way of saying put on, right? We have to teach a person. It's kind of like a pair of scissors. How many of you have ever bought a pair of Cutco scissors? You ever seen those? They come apart, so you can clean them, right? So when you think of put on, uh, put off, put on, you need to think of it kind of like that's a good picture for it. Because if you were to take the like the Cutco scissors, you know, it's not an effective tool if it's separated. So if you have a person only focusing on the put offs and not the put ons, it's, it's not gonna it, it's not gonna work. <laughs> and so keep that in mind. So reaffirming righteousness is important. And going back to Ephesians four. 31 to 32, Paul again says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you along with all malice. But he also says to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we've already learned that the believers to put away once and for all bitterness. When we also learn that Paul's basing that exhortation on and what he's just dialogued about in Ephesians 1 through 3. But we need to talk about, so then how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? And so in that context, the first thing he says is, you know, we put off bitterness, but we put on kindness. So what does that mean? How do I put on kindness? How do I walk in kindness? It just means to be gracious, you know. just need to learn how to be gracious as opposed to harsh and bitter and sharp Paul says that's what love is. Love is kind. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is kind. So when we're kind to others, we're loving that person. We're learning how to love them. Even if, even if they're the offender, um, practically speaking, we're extending kindness when we're choosing not to say unkind words, uh, even to people that have hurt us or to, be, you know, or to withdraw. We're just choosing not to do that. Instead, what you're doing is you're looking for active ways to um, be a blessing. How can you be a blessing to that person? 
That's how you overcome evil with good. Isn't that what Romans teaches us? You know, you don't you overcome evil with good. You don't give in, you don't repay evil for evil. The command to walk in kindness, by the way, is what we call a present middle imperative. And so what Paul is really saying is as believers, we are to keep on becoming kind all the time. Keep on becoming kind towards one another. And we can because we have Christ. We have the capacity. We're redeemed. You know, you have to kind of dialogue with people and coach them. You're a redeemed person. You have the capacity to walk in kindness. You really do. Um, and so those are some, that's an important thing to do. Um, what the second one is walk in tenderness. So what does that mean? Instead of walking in bitterness, we're to keep on becoming tenderhearted. And it just simply means to have compassion. Just need to learn how to be compassionate. Um, it's, it's a very similar exhortation that Peter gives to those poor suffering Christians in First Peter, where he says, instead of repaying evil for evil, we're to have a unity of mind. Uh, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart. Um, tender-heartedness or compassion is just a mark of a Christian. You know, uh, just trying to help them to see that. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 3.12, that as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, we are to put on compassionate hearts. And because of Christ, we have the capacity to do that. And then finally, uh, Paul exhorts the believer to keep on becoming forgiving. You know, um, and what he has in mind there is that kind of forgiveness that just bears up, that bears up with one another. It has the idea of forgiving in the sense of treating the other, the offending party graciously, you know. Um, and he reiterates that in Colossians 3.13 when he says the believer should bear with one another. If anyone has a complaint, we're to forgive each other. Um, and Paul knows that believers will offend and hurt one another, but what he's urging us to do here is to forgive one another for the sake of the unity of the church. That's really the context. For the sake of unity, we need to forgive one another. Um, but here, um, but, you know, and, and just to remind everyone, when you think of church, you're not just thinking of a building, right? Church is a body of believers. So we could be talking about a body of believers in your community church. But we could be talking about your marriage. We could be talking about your friendships, you know, believers. And according to Paul, we can lay aside the sin of bitterness once and for all and continue to walk in kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness because God in Christ forgave us. So there's your motivator. Try to help people to see the motivation behind that. You know, God has forgiven you of all your sin once and for all in Christ. And so you should be eager. It's an attitude of eagerness. You should be ready and eager to forgive when asked. That's, that's what he has in mind. Okay. So we'll wrap up. So what happened to Polly? What was the end of the story? Um, over time, it's kind of funny because I just realized that Jim Neuheiser, I think, supervised me on this counseling case here. <laughs> I was like, who's involved with this with me? But anyway, it was great because he's such, such a big help. If you ever go through ACBC certification, you can ask Jim Neuheiser to be your supervisor because he's wonderful. Um, it took some time, but when Polly began to recognize that she was embittered, um, she did repent of her bitterness. And she did begin to respond to her husband in a way that was Christ-honoring. It was just very consistent. You know, it wasn't easy for her, of course, because he was, he was just in a lot of trouble. We looked for ways to help him. Um, but she began to respond in a manner that was consistent with who she professed to be, right? And along with learning how to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving, she also learned just how to love. Um, because we also talked about what Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. It's not that we're just to love our neighbors, who else are we to love? Our enemies. And to pray for them and to learn how to love them. And in her context, it was kind of hard to say her husband was her enemy, but in her context it was like that. Okay, So she was learning how to abandon her bitterness. And she was learning how to bring the compassion of Christ to bear on that situation. And instead of seeing herself as a victim um, who you know, had, was justified in being bitter um, and cold of heart, she was actually able to see her husband for the first time through the eyes of Christ. And she began to see him. She made a transition. She began to see him just as a needy man who needed the Lord. It's really neat to see that. That's why biblical counseling is so cool, because you just see the Lord work through someone's heart. Yeah. Um, you've got on there just, you know, I think um, 
letter D on your outline. Those are just biblical resources. You know, make sure that your counselees, you, primarily you want them reading through the Word of God, but, you know, supplementary resources. Man, are we blessed. And I just listed some out for you that she read through or I've taken other people through. I love bitterness, the root that pollutes. I love that little booklet. Hopefully I put it on here. Um, oh, yeah, From Forgiven to Forgiving by Patrick Morrison. It's an awesome book. You could have a counselee just read through that and just highlight ten things that stood out to them, and you can just talk about that in a counseling session. I love the new book that I read this year that uh, Dr. Stuart Scott made me aware of was the one by Chris Bronze, Unpacking Forgiveness. That is an awesome book, if you haven't read that. Because a lot of times people that struggle with bitterness, they, they have, it's, you know, usually it's because they need to forgive somebody. So those are just really helpful resources. Um, yeah, and then on that, I think on your outline, for further study, those are some... Like homework questions you could take a counselee through or you can study on your own just to kind of get a little bit more in-depth um, study of, of just this topic because I just can't cover everything. But thank you for coming and I'm going to pray for you. Yeah, I got done on time. Woo! It's amazing. Okay, let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you so much just for the opportunity to even... Be allowed, Lord, to come here and just share with these ladies. We, we thank you for Christ. We thank you uh, that he made a way for us to be reconciled unto you, Lord. We thank you that in Christ we have the capacity to forgive one another from the heart. We thank you that we don't have to be stuck in bitterness towards other people. And, Father, I just pray for each and every woman here. If there is a woman here struggling with bitterness, Lord, I pray that you would just do a work in their heart. I pray that they would turn from their sin, Lord, and turn towards you. Father, if they're counseling someone who's bitter, I just pray that... Um, you would just uh, be a resource to help as she comes alongside, Lord, that you would just work through her as she becomes a resource and a helper to that woman who struggles. And, Lord, we just thank you because you are kind. You are tenderhearted towards us, and you're forgiving towards us, Lord. So help us to be imitators of you, Lord. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.